can't come in Let me sit down in front of your door I leave early in the morning, baby Afternoon. It's time for Elemental Idaho here on Radio Boise KRBX. Welcome. I'm your host, Beth Markley. And this is, of course, our weekly interview and news program featuring discussions on environmental issues and examining the facts relating to forming sound environmental public policy. Just like always, every week, Elemental Idaho explores a different environmental issue specific to Idaho and the way we live, work, recreate in, and interact with our natural environment. Elemental Idaho is produced every week at Radio Boise's downtown studio through a collaborative partnership between Radio Boise and the Idaho Council on Industry and the Environment, whose mission it is to create support for factual discussion of environmental issues and to facilitate the use of science and facts in shaping public policy on them. Today on Elemental Idaho, I am going to talk with the Bureau of Land Management's John Sullivan. He is the Wilderness Project Manager for the Boise District, and we're going to talk about the final draft of the management plan for six wilderness areas and 16 wild and scenic river segments, about 518,000 acres and 325 miles of river in southwestern Idaho established under the Owyhee Initiative. John, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. Uh, we did have a program on the Owyhee Initiative, um, and I was I was surprised looking it up that it's actually uh, back in 2011 was when we had that program. So I think we could probably use a little bit of a refresher for our audience. Can you tell me a little bit about, first of all, um, about the area that we're talking about today, a little bit of the, about the history and, and the, the terrain. Well, the Hawaii Canyonland area of uh, southwest uh, Hawaii County, um, along the border between Oregon and Nevada, is a very unique area uh, that is extremely remote, has incredible canyons um, that, have, uh, that have caused access to be so limited that it stayed relatively natural uh, uh, over over the years, it is largely uh, used by ranchers and some hunters, and then certain during a certain uh, short period during the spring, um, some of the wild and scenic rivers are floated uh, and are very popular floating uh, destinations. Uh, there were some concerns by local residents and uh, people who use the area uh, that the president might designate the area as a national monument. Mm -hmm. uh, the concerns revolved around the fact that if the president designated a national monument, they wouldn't have any uh, impact 
or they wouldn't have any uh, input, I should say, to what uses were allowed or what uses were not allowed within the area. And so a whole host of various organizations came together. Uh, I might just name a few. When I start naming them, uh, there's always a, <laughs> a, a problem of forgetting some, but uh, mm -hmm. the, the Hawaii Initiative uh, group uh, was involved, uh, was made up of uh, the Hawaii County Commissioners, uh, local ranchers, conservation groups, including uh, Idaho Conservation League, the Idaho uh, Rivers United, uh, the Wilderness Society, uh, Sierra Club, Backcountry Horsemen, and Wild Sheep Foundation. They also had representatives from soil and water conservation districts, the Shoshone Paiute Tribes, the Borderland Trust, and OHV groups, so it was really a, quite a diverse group, uh, all having an interest in the area and wanting to solve uh, questions about how they could uh, get together and and uh, and potentially protect some historic uses in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, and when did they start meeting? And this was actually this was an initiative that was put together or initiated by uh, Representative Mike Crapo's office. Am I correct on that? Yeah, they were they were the uh, I guess the 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 group or they kind of led the group um, or at least sponsored the group I guess if you will mm -hmm. um, the the actual discussions between these various groups started back in 2000 or 2001 it was quite a long process and uh, you can imagine a a group as diverse as that they had uh, a lot of problems early on but uh, as the years wore on uh, they found that they had more in common they had uh, uh, differences between them and so they focused on the things they had in common and came up eventually with what they called the Hawaii Initiative Agreement which outlined how they wanted the area to be managed uh, and proposed it as wilderness uh, and and uh, explained how they wanted it to be managed under the wilderness designation and that agreement was then forwarded by Crapo, uh, uh, Senator Crapo as a bill that was eventually then incorporated into the overall omnibus bill in 2009, uh, which was a huge bill or a huge law that was passed, and it was just a portion, a small portion of the larger bill, but it then designated those uh, six wilderness areas and 16 wild and scenic river segments in 2009. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, six wilderness areas—that's a—that's a tremendous amount of, of space and 500. Uh, and 18,000 acres. What t t what types of lands are, are included in that in that space? Well, they vary from uh, high. Uh, well, we can talk about them separately. The mm -hmm. the uh, the uh, North Fork Hawaii Wilderness Area uh, is probably the most rugged of the areas and the highest elevation. It get, gets into the area where you have uh, a pinyon pine and um, uh, and a fir forest. So it's up. Uh, between five and six thousand feet. Most of the other ones are lower elevation, below um, 5,500 feet. Don't have much of a forestry component. Mostly sagebrush with these deep canyons uh, cutting through them. Uh, very rocky, uh, very dry, and uh, and very remote. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what kind of activities are, are uh, included? I mean, what what kind of uh, you have you have uh, ranchers who are grazing livestock in the area, uh, as well as recreationists, off-road vehicles, hiking. Uh, but it's it's fairly spread out, fairly um, considered remote by some folks. I think, in fact, at one point uh, there was some there was some pretty significant controversy. The Air Force was looking at expanding some of the operations of the Air Force Mount Home Air Force Base into the area. 
Some of the, uh, yeah, when they were expanding the, the air base and looking for areas to have electronic emitter sites, uh, there were some sites that they were proposing that were, uh, if not within, very, very close. And uh, those, uh, those sites obviously are, are not within the, the ones that were designated. So uh, most uh, these, uh, these lands are mostly grouped around the canyons and so they tend to be kind of long and linear uh, rather than huge blocks of land um, but uh, in fact the, the one the Bruno Jarbage wilderness area which extends along the Jarbage and the Bruno uh, River canyons in some areas are only as wide as from one canyon rim to the other canyon rim on the lower stretches of the Bruno so it's very very narrow um, in some other areas it's a little bit wider but most of it's just from canyon rim to canyon rim. Mm -hmm. yeah. And is it all uh, uh, BLM land? Is it some uh, other, uh, some, some private land or any, any yeah. other agency that's overseen there, it? There are other inholdings. There are both state and private inholdings. There are mm -hmm. uh, very few private inholdings left in it. Uh, we have, we, uh, BLM has acquired three private inholdings. Um, there are a few others um, that are still left, but, uh, but not very much. Most of the inholdings now are state land. Uh, and we are currently uh, working with the State uh, Department of Lands to, uh, to uh, fashion a land exchange that would allow them to exchange those properties to BLM in exchange for other properties that are near their blocked ownership and uh, make the management uh, more efficient and cost-effective for both agencies. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, I would imagine this process, um, like you said, was pretty, uh, it, it, it took a while, from 2001 to 2009, I mean, indicating a pretty... Uh, lengthy and involved process on all uh, on the part of all parties, uh, and then in 2009 the omnibus bill was passed. What's been going on since then? Have you been working since then to uh, develop these this management plan? Yes, the uh, the legislation provided uh, three years for uh, directed BLM to create a management plan within three years. Uh, uh, the problem is it didn't provide any funding for that process. <laughs> So, that can be a problem. Yeah, so here mm -hmm. we are uh, six years later, uh, and uh, we're just releasing the plan. Uh, I, it, it's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, one side note is we actually released the plan in April of 2014, um, but one thing we failed to notice was there was one line, one sentence in the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, if you've ever read that, it's about 20 pages long, that, uh, that requires... Uh, the administering agency, once they, once they uh, uh, create a management plan for Wild and Sink Rivers, to publish the availability of that plan in the Federal Register. We failed to notice that requirement, and so we just published notices in the local newspapers. Uh, we were, it didn't take long for, uh, for us to find that out from the public, mm -hmm. and so we had to pull back that, that decision uh, and reissue it uh, through the Federal Register notice, and so the actual final decision was released last month, uh, April of 2015. So. Okay. And so tell me uh, a little bit, Let's. What, what is involved in developing a management plan for an area as large and, and, and diverse as this one? Did you, did you go back and take a look at all of the different uh, stipulations that each of the different groups had in terms of how they wanted it to be managed and the the um, considerations that, that were made uh, and concessions that were made by each of them? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting when you, you have 
such a diverse group who have pushed for the re for a legislation, and then once it gets passed, uh, trying to determine what was the original intent of the group and what was the intent of Congress in passing the legislation, if you see a difference between the original bill or the proposal and the, the ultimate law. And BLM's um, role, and it, it wasn't always a, a very good role to be in, but our role was to try to, to decide um, whether differences between the original proposal and the ultimate law were administratively um, uh, reconcilable from BLM or whether there were differences that, uh, that had to be settled through subsequent legislation. And uh, we were able to, to administratively resolve all but about three issues and, uh, um, uh, and we, by working with the Y Initiative uh, folks. So, mm -hmm. so you kept uh, them in the loop in the, in, the, in the interim during this process? Yes, we met periodically with them at, during their meetings. They meet every, uh, or once every two, two months and we would continue to work with them and, and their groups uh, to make sure that we were adequately uh, representing what they, uh, what they were uh, understanding the law to mean. You know? mm -hmm, so so uh, they, they continue to meet then. Uh, are they continue to meet to this day? Oh, yes. And what, yeah. what, kind of, what kind of work do they, we, you know, we had actually a member of that team who was going to come and join us today. Uh, uh, well, she was a, a county commissioner, Brenda Williams, but now she's, uh, I think she's the county treasurer or something, but she's unable to join us today. So I would like to get her perspective. But um, in lieu of that, what kinds of things that you know about that do they, are they discussing that um, activities that are happening in the, on the, uh, in, the, in the area or things that come up since then? Do you happen to know? Well, yeah, they, they uh, because they're so um, involved with uh, the things that are happening there, they, they, keep, a, they keep us uh, alerted of anything that they see happening that, that they think shouldn't be happening um, and, um, and let us know when, let BLM know when, when they think BLM should be taking action on something that, that we need to do. So there are separate eyes and ears out there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I'm, I wouldn't say that we always agree on everything, but uh, they've been a tremendous help to us. Yeah. Well, I can imagine in this day and age of you know resources um, being in short supply for different agencies, local and, and federal, that, uh, that to have that kind of local partnership um, with a mutual purpose can be tremendous. Yes, I have, I have two park rangers that work for me. Um, whose purpose it is is to go out and monitor the wilderness areas and the use of the wild and scenic rivers. Um, but those five those those 500,000 acres are spread out over several million acres, um, and the access is so poor that it's just difficult for two people um, to adequately monitor the area and, and know what all is going on. So it really helps when we have other people's eyes and ears out there. Um, wow, so, difficult yeah. in the extreme, I can imagine. Yeah. That's a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Well, we have time. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about some more um, specifics with regard to the management plan. So stick with us.
Programming on Radio Boise is brought to you in part by Highlands Hollow, a North End brew house family owned and operated at the base of Bogus Basin for over 12 years. Highlands Hollow brews up handcrafted ales on site with nine different options available on tap daily and offers a menu that features foods prepared from scratch, sourcing fresh and local ingredients. They host live local music every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 9.30. You can learn more on Highlands Hollow's Facebook page. Programming on Radio Boise is sponsored in part by Zamzos, a pet and garden center. Zamzos offers a lawn program that includes a seasoned supply of organic-based lawn food, instructions on when to apply, and a spreader to help get the food into your lawn. Zamzos supports grassroots public radio and green lawns throughout the valley. You can learn more at zamzos.com. Think Boise First is a nonprofit network that connects and promotes locally owned, independent businesses and educates consumers on local products and services. Becoming a member or finding their member business directory is as simple as visiting thinkboisefirst.org. And welcome back. This is, of course, Elemental Idaho. And for our show today, I'm talking with the BLM's John Sullivan about the Owyhee Canyonlands Wilderness and Wild and Scenic Rivers Management Plan. And when we left off, we had just started talking a little bit about um, some of the specifics. And I'm just wondering, uh, first of all, how long is this is this document and how what kind of specifics does it get into um, over the over the course of a, the plan. When you say how long is it, it's like how many pages? Well, the it's well over hundred pages, uh-huh. um, and it goes into fairly good detail on a number of issues. One of the issues, of course, is recreational access to the rivers. Uh, we had occasion to meet with several groups that represented floaters during the process, and of course, this area has been popular for thirty years. We were able to look back and dredge up a, um, a study that had been done back in, 19, in the early 1980s about the types of users that floated the rivers and uh, the comments and the, the, the interest they had in continued use and the types of use that they had. Uh, and we had a subsequent study done uh, back in 2012 and 13. And it was amazing the, the numbers of people that uh, the average age of the people were about 30 years later than the ones that they did in 1980. So what, hmm. what, what that showed us is that we had the same, almost the same people, just 30 years older than they were back in 1980, that are floating the rivers and still floating the rivers with the same interests that they had back then. Um, and the numbers of people floating are about the same. And so since we didn't see the numbers sub- significantly uh, improving or uh, increasing over the years, we we didn't think it was necessary to actually limit numbers or the types of, of floaters. We hope that we can maintain that over the uh, over the uh, the next several years or, or decades because the the very poor access to the rivers is kind of a self-limiting issue and and a lot of people don't want to <laughs> don't want to submit their their cars and trucks to the to the potential damage right. of getting down into the canyons. So they just choose to go somewhere else that has better access. Uh-huh. But the people that do 
just love it and uh, and and have been loving it for for decades. So. so when you talk about managing for those recreational needs, I mean, I know like I've been on the Middle Fork of the Salmon, for example, and they have a permit process and they have specific uh, takeout areas where you can camp. Does it get that? Um, detailed, or do you find that you don't have to necessarily, you said that it's self-limiting in terms of the access, um, do you find that you don't have to manage it quite that closely? Yeah, we they, uh, we do not have a permit system. We do have a system that people have, uh, people have a, a self, what we call a self-issue permit, and the purpose mm-hmm. for that is so that we know who's on the river in case they don't show up again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's free, and they all they do is is, uh, is either get on, on, on the web um, and fill it out or fill it out at the, at the put-in point so that we know who's on the river. But the only, the only restriction for the river floaters is that the groups can be no larger than 15 people per group. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we chose not to make any other restrictions on, on the river floaters unless uh, future monitoring shows some impacts to either the, the resources, the campsites, or maybe uh, you know, user conflicts. But uh, we don't see that happening right now. So. Now, does the plan, that brings up a question for me, does the plan have a, a built-in structure for, for updates de- depending upon how the usage of the area change, changes? And how often does that happen? How much, how much research goes into that, and how often does that happen? Well, my two park rangers are charged with monitoring the use of the wilderness areas and the wild and scenic rivers, but there's a formal... Uh, monitoring process that has been developed by the Department of Interior that happens every five years uh, on each of the wilderness areas. Uh, and so even though we do user monitoring each year, we actually uh, do a formal monitoring report every five years. Um, mm-hmm. It's difficult to tell changes over uh, from a year to year, but mm-hmm. from every five-year intervals, I th- that it's probably long enough to, to actually see changes that need to be addressed. Yeah. Well, tell me about some of the other uses. Uh, uh, first of all, some of the other recreational uses. Um, you, you talked about access to the river being self-limiting, uh, and y- there were um, offered vehicle use- usage groups that were part of this initiative. What uh, you know, what kinds of uses uh, are you seeing besides the the river the river traffic? Well, one of the one of the big issues, of course, was was continued access through that country, and because uh, the canyons uh, are difficult to cross, um, what they wanted to do was retain access along the major corridors that that had some crossing on the river or access to the river, and so the omnibus uh, bill um, that designated the the wilderness areas actually. Um, maintain what we call cherry stem routes that uh, that go through the wilderness areas, which are non-wilderness. Um, but this particular bill actually have cherry stem routes that cross clear through the wilderness areas, which actually split the wilderness areas into smaller units, which continue uh, some historic access for, for the public. Now, there were some old, uh, what we call administrative routes that went to, uh, you know, range improvements, fences, reservoirs, and so on, that are no longer available for public use, but they will remain available by BLM authorization for those people who need to maintain those improvements uh, on, a, on an annual or, or every uh, few years basis when they have to go in and maintain their fences or maintain their springs or, or, um, or, or whatever they have in there. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But those are not open to the public. Um, what about uh, agricultural uses, uh, grazing and so forth? Is there grazing on this land? Grazing is continued on. Yeah, the grazing was not uh, was not affected uh, per se. Uh, 
the the wilderness specifically the wilderness act and the omnibus act specifically said we would not reduce uh, livestock grazing just because it's de designated um, unless we did a did an analysis of impacts uh, to the resource and there was a reason to reduce it but w any redu any reductions would not be based on the wilderness designation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one interesting issue that we're tr that we we've been addressing uh, for quite some time since the uh, designation took effect was the historical use of uh, motor vehicles for monitoring or herding livestock. Uh, and uh, we uh, still have not totally resolved that except that what we've incorporated into the final plan uh, is a requirement that the, anyone who wants to use motorized vehicles to, to uh, herd or monitor their, li their livestock must apply and get specific authorization for that. And, and uh, what we would do with that proposal is to evaluate it under what they call the minimum requirements analysis, which is, a, which is an analysis process that looks not at the natural resource impacts of the proposal, but of the potential impacts of the proposal on wilderness character, um, and, uh, and, then, and then come up with a decision as to how and to what extent that use can be accommodated uh, um, so, um, well, and what I mean, what what kinds of um, what kinds of input I mean have you received? You've you've initially you know uh, put forth this this plan um, in April two thousand fourteen, right? Yeah. And did I mean? Do you, have you have you had an, any feedback at all that tells you um, of some groups that are going to? Uh, um, uh, give you some give you some significant pause or any any kind of feedback at all? Yeah, uh, I'll talk about three or four uh, main issues that came out from the original April 2014 release. Mm -hmm. um, we got some significant comments from the North American Pack Goat Association, which I didn't even know existed until this plan came out. Never heard of them, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, wow. But the plan originally said um, that it prohibited the use of pack goats, uh -huh. um, and it uh, and it prohibited the use of domestic sheep grazing, and for the purposes that those two uses could potentially have an impact on bighorns by potentially uh, transmitting diseases to the bighorn sheep in the area. And there are three main herds in wilderness areas, so we chose to prohibit those uses. They took umbrage at that. Um, and we looked again at the issue. Uh, we coordinated with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game as well as the Western Area Wild Fish and Wildlife uh, Associations, which Idaho Fish and Game is a part of. And they specifically recommended that any agencies with management authority over bighorn sheeps uh, prohibit those two uses. And so we continued that prohibition into the final plan. Um, and we mm -hmm. haven't heard back from them as yet, but uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we do. Uh, um, another issue that we took on originally was a prohibition on commercial trapping uh, because the Wilderness Act specifically prohibits commercial activities in wilderness areas. Um, we subsequently coordinated with, uh, with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game who then informed us that here in Idaho, unlike some other states, they do not issue commercial trapping licenses. Uh, the only, uh, with, with the exception of their employees or contractors who are doing wildlife damage control uh, work for them. Mm -hmm. But for the general public, all the licenses are recreational in nature. Um, based on that input, um, 
we did away with that prohibition and all we say about trapping now is trapping is is not prohibited but but any trapping access has to be non-motorized or non-mechanized so mm-hmm. if you want to walk in off of a road outside of wilderness to set traps you certainly have and you didn't have to specify the non-commercial because that's understood right okay yeah interesting any other any other major um, areas that you think you'll hear back from folks on or well uh, there was another issue that came up we the original proposal uh, took on uh, the use of hunting blinds uh, mm-hmm. both uh, permanent hunting blinds and temporary hunting blinds now permanent hunting blinds because of their very nature uh, was prohibited because they use wood and metal and, and wire and so on to create those and that's specifically prohibited by the Wilderness Act. Now the use of temporary blinds was another issue that was 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 kind of tricky because the Wilderness Act prohibits installations and structures and structures are defined as something that's inhabitable either long-term or short-term by humans which a hunting blind would be even a pop-up line for a certain amount of time. And things like that are allowed, just like a camping tent, as long as the person using it uh, takes it with them when they leave. The, so they can't the just wilderness. set it up and, just, and leave it there for every weekend when they come in. Right. Okay. And the issue revolved around the hunters wanting to put up their hunting blind, their pop-up hunting blinds, uh, a week to 10 days uh, earlier than the hunting season so the wildlife would get used to them. Oh. Um, and so what we did was we agreed to develop a free permitting system for those people that wanted to set up a hunting blind earlier than the hunting season, uh, no more than 10 days earlier. Um, And that allows us not only to know where those are at and to monitor the use of the blind, but then any blinds that are there that that aren't permitted um, would then be removed. So we we now have a way to know who's in there legally or illegally, and we can address that issue that way. This all comes back to me uh, in my mind of the two rangers you have monitoring this entire area. I'm just I'm just astonished by the the amount of of travel they must have to do and to be able to have eyes on the ground and the and the the fact that um, how much they uh, need to rely on on some of the local folks. Tell me a little bit about um, the impact uh, this this wilderness designation and the, the the plan the particulars of the plan have on the the local economy and the local residents and, and how they view it, what you know about that. Well, I think the uh, the local residents, of course, uh, view it as a potential economic uh, boon to the county. Uh, the more people that come to recreate in or hunt in the area, um, you know, people view the areas uh, now as wilderness that they perceive the areas having a greater recreational potential because there's going to be fewer people in the area. That may or may not be true, but I think that's a perception by a number of people. So they they can sometimes come long distances to to experience the area, and of course that whatever they bring with them is usually uh, uh, you know they the purchasing of uh, mm-hmm. dollars are spent uh, either within the county or within close proximity to the county. So uh, whether it's gas or, or food or whatever it is, uh, hunting licenses sometimes, um, fishing licenses. So 
Um, so I think there is a there is an economic advantage to the county for having those there. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, we have time for just another quick break, and when we come back. We will uh, talk about how folks can um, take a look at the plan and some other some other particulars. So stick with us. <laughs> Is it ten? Ain't but the one thing. It doesn't make me sing the blue. I ain't got no bottom ain't on. John. 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 If I can, can't come in. Let me sit down in front of your door. I leave early in the morning, baby. This is Charlie Woodruff, co-host of Building a Greener Idaho. This is River. This is Canyon. And I think you should tune to Building a Greener Idaho every Tuesday at 3 p.m. For the sake of my future, please tune in to Building a Greener Idaho. For our conversations with local, regional, and national experts on green building, energy efficiency, and sustainability. Tune in in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. And help us build greener Idaho. Dad, it's hard to read your handwriting. Programming on Radio Boise is brought to you in part by Bitter Creek Ale House on 8th Street in downtown Boise. Bitter Creek Ale House features a beer program aiming to balance what's current in local beer culture with what's in the regional scene and from around the world. Bitter Creek maintains a mature cellar with kegs, bottles, and cans that represent a curated selection of rare, unique, and aged ales. Bitter Creek Ale House understands the power of beer and community-powered radio. You can learn more at BitterCreekAleHouse.com. Programming on Radio Boise is sponsored in part by the Modern Hotel and Bar, hosting the 8th annual Modern Art event on the first Thursday in May from 5 to 10 p.m. Modern Art is an event open to visitors of all ages who are able to wander from room to room viewing each artist's work. You can learn more about the Modern Art event at TheModernHotel.com. And uh, welcome back to Elemental Idaho on KRBX Radio Boise. I have a few calendar items to share with you before we continue with our interview. First, uh, tonight, May 6th, uh, it's the Wild About Life Lecture Series. 
Several hummingbird species are found in Idaho and mesmerized with their showy colors and amazing acrobatics. Join biologist Carl Rudine for a deep dive into the unique aspects of hummingbirds. Come at 6 p.m. for a brief discussion of hummingbird banding and banding demonstration. This will be at 6 p.m. at the Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge Visitor Center, 13751 Upper Embankment Road in Nampa. And this Saturday, May 9th, Spring Birds in Hull's Gulch from the Second Saturday Series at the Foothills Learning Center in Boise, the middle of May is the peak of spring bird migration in Boise and one of the best times to be in Hulls Gulch looking for birds. Learn the basics of birding from our local friend and expert, Terry Rich, who will introduce you to our resident birds and to those who visit only for part of the year, each spring and early summer. Then head outside and put your skills to the test. Terry and other volunteer birders will be on hand to lead small groups looking and listening for birds. You can also make a hummingbird feeder from repurposed materials. Try your hand at some bird art and more. Kids, bring your mom out for a pre-Mother's Day treat. We hope you can join us from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Foothills Learning Center, 3188 Sunset Peak Road in Boise. And there's information available at bee.cityofboise.org. And then on Tuesday, May 12th, now you need to register for this by Friday, May 8th. It's the Paradigm Project, a presentation that actually was on Elemental Idaho not too long ago, uh, featuring the BLM's link, uh, Lance Okeson. Idaho is the epicenter for large wildfires in the U.S. The Paradigm Project is set to implement a network of fuel breaks across the Snake River Plain from Boise to Glens Ferry based on the need to curtail fires that ignite along travel routes as well as lightning-caused fires. Since 1980, more than 170,000 acres have burned within the project area, more than 80% of which were human-caused and 20 of which were caused by lightning putting structures at risk as well as allowing the degradation of habitat as natural grasses are replaced by invasive species. This will be from 11.30 to 1 p.m. at the Owyhee, 1109 West Main Street in Boise. And there's information and registration uh, link available at idahoenvironmentalforum.org. Remember, this is next Tuesday, but you do have to register by the 8th. And then Saturday, May 16th is Watershed Weekend, Aqua Ventures and Sewer Science Celebrate National Public Works Week at the Boise Watershed and learn about wastewater, groundwater, and more. Tour a vac truck and meet public works employees that maintain your sewer lines. Try your hand at wastewater engineering and learn more about the innovative Dixie Drain Phosphorus Project. This is a uh, celebration of Region 3's Water Awareness Week, and it's from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Boise River Watershed Environmental Education Center, 11818 West Joplin Road in Boise. And there's more information available at bee.cityboise.org. There's more uh, stuff on our calendar page than I think we have time to read out today. But uh, as always, if I, of course, if I've uh, run through it too quickly and you didn't catch some of the contact information, um, or you want to take a look at that uh, at your leisure, then I hope you'll visit elementalidaho.org and click on the calendar page. And uh, the, those links are active on there right then. You can, you can click through and, and uh, sign up for your favorite uh, programs that I've read on here. And as always, if you have an event relating to legislative policy or environmental education, I hope you'll let me know. You can also contact me on that website, elementalidaho.org. And I'm talking today on Elemental Idaho with the BLM's John Sullivan about the Owyhee Canyonlands Wilderness and Wild and Scenic Rivers Management Plan. Uh, and we talked briefly 
about the possibility of a of, the, of la- a land swap to um, improve access or connect some of those spaces, I'm assuming, um, within the, the area that we're talking about. Can you talk a little bit more about that and where that is and how that's coming? Yeah, the boundaries of the, uh, the wilderness areas uh, incorporate uh, quite a, quite a, a number of uh, state uh, sections of land, uh, probably 28 or 29,000 acres of, of lands um, that are either totally within or either partially within or adjacent um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the wilderness areas. And the Omnibus Bill, or the Omnibus Act, specified that lands that are acquired by BLM either within or immediately adjacent to the wilderness area would become wilderness upon acquisition. And so we've been working with the State Department of Lands to, to, uh, to do a land exchange, uh, which would basically take all of the state lands that are either within or immediately adjacent to the wilderness areas and make them part of the wilderness. And in exchange, then BLM would give the state parcels of land that, that uh, aid in their management in other areas. So um, that would obviously, uh, if we didn't do that, uh, reduced access to state parcels would affect those people who are currently leasing those state lands. And and then uh, they would have uh, reduced revenue and, of course, uh, Idaho Constitution requires state lands to to manage their properties for for the for the greatest revenue, and so that would help them uh, attain their their objective for land management as well as BLM's objectives for uh, for for improved management of the wilderness areas as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, that's that's just pending. I mean, you're you're going through that on a case by case basis. I'm assuming. Yes. And not necessarily part of the management plan itself. No, it is separate from the management plan. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming. I mean, the Owyhee Initiative Group is still meeting. They're they're active in um, in helping manage this area to to a degree. Uh, to what extent is this a model that other um, states across the country are looking at replicating? Uh, and 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 how are they looking to Idaho as in terms of a model? Well, this group has gotten a tremendous amount of uh, news coverage over the past several years. Uh, touting uh, the fact that uh, these incredibly diverse groups came together over a period of years. And, and uh, so it is being thrown up as a model for, uh, for resolving, you know, conservation-related and land management questions and, and issues. So uh, to the extent that it's actually been uh, taken on by the groups, I'm really not aware of it, but I, I would certainly expect that that's the truth, that, uh, that, it, that it has been used as a model and is being used as a model right now, probably. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. I, I just, we come back to this recurring theme of, of collaboration on, on a lot of our shows here in Elemental Idaho, and I, I find it really fascinating that, that we have these groups that are willing to, to have conversations with each other about things that can be very touchy issues, um, and historically that, that folks haven't been willing to cross the line um, for each other. And the fact that the folks in um, Owyhee County have embraced the, the the wilderness designation. Just seems counter to um, the historical, you know, the um, uh, outlook of of that kind of designation for that kind of area from the people immediately adjacent to it. So yeah, it's yeah, it's it's interesting when you come into a meeting with a with a diverse group like that. You don't recognize <laughs> or appreciate what you have in common because you're there trying to. <coughs> argue for your particular interests and it's not until you've spent time with people and get to know them as 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 people and 
and uh, you know, and and have dinner with them, and you know, you say you can't argue over dinner. You know, uh, that's what brings people together. And over over time, you become friends and partners uh, rather than antagonists. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's uh, that's the process that uh, eventually results in these agreements. Uh, and uh, it's it, and it's a great process. Well, it must be very rewarding to 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 work with. Uh, how do folks uh, take a look at the at the document and comment? Do they just go to the BLM site or? Yes, uh, the the plan was released on April twentieth for a thirty day appeal period. So you mm-hmm. have until May the twentieth uh, to read, review, and potentially uh, appeal uh, an issue if you have a particular issue that uh, you feel has not been treated uh, correctly. Uh, you can view the the. Um, the management plan on the ID uh, on the uh, BLM's Idaho website, which is you can find it id uh, id.blm.gov, gov, uh, and there are links available that you can follow to either the wilderness web page or the planning web page. Both of have uh, links to the to the management plan. And if for some reason you can't find those links, uh, you can email me at j the letter j Sullivan at blm.gov, and I can provide you that link. Mm-hmm. And what's the process after the comment period is ended for um, putting this management plan into action? Once the comment period ends, or once the appeal period ends, if we, haven't, if we don't have any appeals, um, then the management plan will stay as currently written. Mm-hmm. If we have appeals, uh, we will have to address those appeals on a case-by-case basis, and uh, those appeals go through uh, a review by what they call the Interior Board of Land Appeals back in Washington, and uh, th- those appeals can sometimes be lengthy uh, uh, in as much as a year or longer to, uh, to resolve. So um, uh, those issues, those appealed issues, are up in the air. Any, any issue that wasn't appealed would still be managed as it is in the management plan. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on the show today and telling us a little bit more about that. Thank well, you, John. It was my pleasure. I've been told I have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you certainly have a great voice for radio, so that's been that's been a pleasure, and you have you have a voice uh, and a face for for any number of things, I'm sure. Uh, and of course, you've been listening to Elemental Idaho. Our show is a collaborative production of Radio Boise and the Idaho Council on Industry and the Environment. ICIE is headed for by Executive Director Pat Barkley, who helps identify the themes and coordinate the speakers for each of our shows. Our music was selected for us today by Mike Markley, and you can find our playlist online at radioboise.org. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our speakers do not reflect those of the producers of the show or KRBX uh, specifically and are presented for educational purposes only. Next week, I hope you'll join me again on Elemental Idaho. I think we have our schedule online at elementalidaho.org. You can take a look at that at the upcoming programs. And you can tune in at 89.9 FM or 93.5 FM if you're in the downtown area. Or listen in at radioboise.org where we'll be live streaming. If you happen to miss one of our programs, I should say, you can go to elementalidaho.org and listen to the, an archived copy. Um, if you subscribe to elementalidaho.org, you can also get that right in your inbox, um, usually a couple days after it happens so that you don't miss anything. I hope you'll do that. And I hope you'll stay uh, tuned in to Radio Boise again. I'm your host, Beth Markley. Thank you so much for listening today.
This is the Monday morning blues, something we all we working class people wake up in the morning. You know how it is, you stay up so late and you get up that morning. You, when you get out of bed, fixing to go to work, you can't hardly find your Monday morning shoes. <laughs> Get a pick and shovel. Get a pick and shovel. Let's go down in the mine. That's the only time. That's the only time. That's the only time. I ever felt like crying. Lord, my heart struck sorrow. Well, my heart struck sorrow. Well, my heart struck sorrow, and the tears come rolling down. I woke up this morning. Woke up this morning. Woke up this morning with the Monday morning blues. 